Welcome to Game Changers, the podcast for sales and sales leadership within the investment management industry. I'm your host, John Keevy, and I run a recruiting firm, Career Connections, focused on the industry. You can find and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If ever in your career able to have the opportunity to work with an executive coach, you should embrace it full-heartedly because it's one of the ways I think to turbocharge your understanding of yourself and best how to apply your strengths and put yourself in a position to utilize your strength to maximum effect. Today, we have a guest who's carved his distinguished path in the world of investment management. Joining us is Brett Wright, the head of sales and distribution for Access Investments, a leading asset manager providing access to alternative investments for growth, income, and diversification. Prior to Access, Brett spent 12 years with Macquarie Investment Management, and he ultimately led all business development in the Americas across public and private capabilities. With over two decades of experience in the industry, Brett is a true expert in the field. Prior to executive leadership, Brett was both a client-facing salesperson and later a leader of sales teams calling upon a wide range of advisors. Brett's dedication to the industry extends beyond his roles as he was appointed to the Board of Governors for the Money Management Institute in January 2020. He also contributed to the Investments and Wealth Institute as a board member from 2013 to 2018. And here's a fun fact. Brett earned his bachelor's degree from Penn State University, and while there, he played linebacker for the Nittany Lions was a captain during his senior season. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode with Brett Wright, a true leader and influencer in the world of asset management. Welcome to the show, Brett. Uh, John, terrific. Uh, grateful for the opportunity. Excited to be a participant in Game Changers. It's been following you for a long time. Great. Thank you, Brett. Well, you and I don't know each other well, but I recall um, over the years, and I've been doing this quite a while, Brett, you and I have had some engaging conversations and you've been very generous with your time in the past and, uh, you know, talking about candidates, talking about the business. So I, I really appreciate you over the course of your career. Um, I know you've had a lengthy career, but if you don't mind, as I do in these podcasts, Brett, I often ask people to go back to their early past and talk about some of their early life, their family, their education, and ultimately what led you to come into this industry. So I'm just curious as to you know, where'd you grow up and what was your early life like? Yeah, no, no. Appreciate that opportunity as I kind of rephrased that. Then you're asking what the, the origin story and the stories sure. we tell ourselves. And, sure. And if I look back on uh, those in, indelible uh, influences, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a couple of things come to mind. I, I grew up in a small tobacco farming community in Southern Maryland. Okay. My dad was a police officer. Well, he would say also a, a former Marine, mm-hmm. no such thing as ex-Marine. Right. And my mother was uh, a mountain mama from West Virginia. Wow. And uh, I bring that up because the lessons I learned from him, I thought back to it, that origin story, the story I tell myself is the kind of the dignity of work, mm-hmm. uh, middle-class community, you, 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 you get up, you work hard, you're part of the community. Right. And these lessons learned around uh, doing a good job, but also doing it in a, in a good manner was uh, something that uh, I think they modeled, modeled for me very early on. Sure, sure. And so no early connections, no family in the business, in financial services of any kind? No, no, no. no. I grew up in a town where everyone was in, in the trades. So my dad was a cop, I was a secretary. Uh, my neighbors were moving companies, electricians, uh, uh, business owners, et cetera. Salt uh, of the earth people. Did, didn't know what a stockbroker was, didn't know what financial services was. Wouldn't right. could tell you what a wealth manager was back in the day. Right, right, right. Right. So you, you, but you had an athletic career growing up, I assume, because I know you went on to um, work uh, to play football for Penn State of all schools. So I was just curious, what was that early life like? Was was sports a big part of your uh, your early life? 
Yeah, no, hey, no, no doubt about it. Uh, was it was fortunate enough and, and look back uh, to receive. Uh, I was a football player, mm-hmm. uh, recruited by, recruited by Penn State, decent school, mm-hmm. uh, not too far away from, from Maryland. <laughs> I've heard of it. Uh, had a guy by the name of Joe Paterno back <laughs> in the day. Some people may recall him. Uh, sure. Came down, recruited me, and got starry eyed. And, and and know about about it. it was a catalyst in terms of my life in terms of leaving a small town mm-hmm. having a chance to go to a university and, and be exposed right and uh and you look back on that happy to talk about about it more but but certainly for for me that was the ticket out of a small town and and puts me in a position where i'm in today having a conversation with you right without that it wouldn't have happened right right right, right. so how did that impact you in terms of your drive competitiveness what do you think you took away from that experience to bring into your later life. Yeah. Hey, well, I'd say, uh, you know, you always look for examples along the way to speak who you are and how you do it. Uh, I've always been, uh, if I look back on, I've always been a striver, a hard nosed, hardworking. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to Penn state. I was a linebacker. We used to say, be you know, agile, mobile and hostile. Sure. Uh, started, started, was a captain my senior year. And quite frankly, was uh, a little bit too slow, uh, t- uh, to go to the next level. When you run a, when you run a, a four nine forty downhill with a breeze <laughs> to your background. You, you, you know, the New York Giants aren't necessarily calling at your footsteps, but but I tell you what it teaches you. Whether it's football or I know your son you know, plays crew, mm-hmm. or my daughter who's a squash player. Sports, it doesn't matter what. It's the notion of what it teaches you, and it teaches you two valuable life skills. It teaches you grit, and it teaches you teamwork. And I would argue those are two attributes that hold you well through life. Right. And when I talk about grit, I always think about lessons learned and, and things I impart to my own kids. When you get knocked down, the first thing you do is you get back up and you get back into the play. Right. And I think that's a pretty good lesson around sports that I think uh, often you know translate quite well to the world of, of sales and and self selected. So so that'd be some some feedback on that. John. Right. So you so is. A sports background, something or a competitive sports background, something you're looking for when you're a sales manager, or I mean, is that always a theme that you're uh, that you're appreciating in candidates? Yeah, no, I'd say appreciate. It's not it's not a uh, an up up or down for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think relative to any candidate, you're trying to find ways to say what makes you distinctive, what is part of your brand, and right. what's part of the unique story, right. uh, origin story of that individual. And I think it's just a dimension right. for someone to explore and something that often provides a common background for a starting point to engage in a dialogue. And so so important, yes, be all the end all, no. Right. Uh, but in terms of distinctiveness and brand, it certainly helps. Got it, got it. So Brett, how did you get exposed to finance in general? Did you study finance in college or something related to to I'm assuming something business related, perhaps. Yeah, I love I love the assumption. I always get that <laughs> over my years. I've been fortunate enough to, to be in this industry for a while and, and rise up through the ranks. And and, uh, and no, I wasn't a business major. Okay, I wasn't an econ major either. Uh, I went to a very fabulous school at Penn State called the Hotel Restaurant and Institutional Management, uh, where my grand ambition one day was to go work at like a Marriott or Hyatt, travel the world, sure, uh, and be in the hospitality industry. Didn't quite work out that way. Uh, my senior year, serendipitously ran into a couple ex-players. Uh, was on the sidelines. Often happens, you know, the alumni come back for for home games and strike up a conversation. And invariably, the question always comes for the for those other than that one percent school in the NFL. So, Brett, what are you going to do next? Right. And uh, I didn't have a lot. John, I wish I would say I had my whole career mapped out in front of me. I didn't. Uh, the gentleman I talked to happened to be working at uh, Merrill Lynch and, 
in Washington, D.C., the WK Animal Kingdom office, and uh, says, why don't you come down here and you know, I'll become a stockbroker or something I think you could do. You know, you're a linebacker. You're not the smartest guy in the room, but I think you've got the grit to be pretty successful at it. You give it a try. And so, so no, no background in, in kind of formal training in business. But I think that lessons learned is careers are nonlinear. Right. Where you start is not where you end. Yeah. I see that a lot. I mean, I remember just off the top of my head, I interviewed a young woman who was very successful in the business and had a long career at one particular firm, but she had not only an undergrad degree, but a graduate degree in anthropology. And I'm like, this doesn't add up. Like, how did you end up here? But she took a lot of positives out of that experience and applied it. It's just, uh, you're right though, especially in the world of distribution, you see a lot of, a lot of nonlinear careers, as you say. I mean, people not studying finance or economics, but something seemingly random, but it ends up in the, you know, they, they take the positive experiences out of it and apply it in this new, new world. Great example. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. So, so Brett, you, you start at Merrill Lynch. Is it an advisory type setting that you're in? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, back, back, back then we, we would call them financial advisors, wealth managers. Uh, back then it was a, a stockbroker. Okay. That's the term we used back then. Uh, yeah. Stick you in a room, get you your series seven, uh, get you trained on front of a script. And would spend from morning, afternoon to evening uh, calling people like yourself before the do not call list came into play and asking them if they would be interested in buying a tractor AAA rated bond from the state of Virginia that was yielding 4% on that, which on a tax free basis or pull it to 6.5% from your local bank. Right. Do that 80 times a day, maybe get five leads. And that was my entry point into the business. Wow. Okay. Yeah, the world is much different now, but uh, I'm sure you. I'm sure you don't regret that training, though. It does. It does toughen you up. It hardens you up. It. Um, you know, I think that you know, the, the, the folks that have done it. I've done it myself in a different industry, but just that that grind, that selling grind. Uh, you learn a lot from that. Yeah, you you learn a lot from being once again. It's just a, a, a kind of a red thread that will mm-hmm. be through this. One would be careers are nonlinear. Second, it's the attributes that you bring throughout your life. And we just talked about one, athletes, the notion of grit. Right. And the third, just be persistence. Sure. Persistence. When you see people on this podcast or successful people, uh, whatever walk of life, you've seen them at that point in time. What you don't see is the overnight success typically took 5, 10, 15 years of hard work, grit, sustenance right. to get to where they were. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did you fall upon investment management, particularly in, in distribution and, and wholesaling? How did you end up in that area? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, you know, in terms of uh, several years as an advisor, uh, was drawn to wholesalers by wholesalers that called on me. And, okay. and relative to kind of taking that next step in your career, uh, there's three things that kind of stood out to me in the world of wholesaling. First of all, I've always, uh, relative to my brand, have been known somewhat as, a, I don't say a social animal, but highly, highly... Uh, uh, high sense of uh, emotional intelligence and loving to engage with people. Second, I just was really drawn to the intermediary aspect, okay. not the in client, but the intermediary, professional to professional. Uh, and then, and then this list also again put, put things in context. There's a sense of adventure uh, coming into an office every single day, five days a week, versus traveling to a region. And uh, my really big first opportunity was a chance not to be in D.C. but to move to California and wholesale Southern L.A. and and I had never been on a plane before until I went to Penn State, had never really traveled broadly. Uh, vacation for us was to the Maryland shore. A big vacation was getting in the car and drive down to Florida. To find yourselves in Southern California was an adventure. And so so that it was uh, sometimes you have a chance to take the road less travel. My advice would be take the road less travel. Sure. Uh, it's a damn good adventure. Yeah. 
it's a, it's an unconventional day, right? So you're you're spending a lot of your. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about your experiences as an external. You're spending most of your time in social settings, face to face, as opposed to working in a conventional office nine to five. Um, so you you enjoy that aspect of it and that that differentiated day. Absolutely. The, the variety in the day, mm-hmm. the differences of individuals that you interact with and, right. and the chance to visit new places and try new things at that time in my life was something that a high degree of uh, attractiveness to. Sure. So how is, in your mind, Brett, how is the career or how is the experience of a wholesaler in the 90s compared to how it is today? How, how has that world changed? Because I know the business has changed. I'm just curious as to, you know... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So, so the bit, hey, I don't care what it is. Every business is changing. You can't look at media entertainment. You know, you look at healthcare. It's a bit, every industry goes through a change. Certain things don't change. The nature of relationships counting, the notion of uh, being technical and knowing your product, uh, the idea of kind of territory management, th- those things are evergreen. But the context of the environment that we work in right. has changed and will continuously change. I mean, you go back and just to give you three instances, you know, you, there's no doubt that the, the rise of passive and ETFs has been, has been a wayward shift. There's no doubt that the rise of advisors and the notion that FAs went from stockbrokers to financial advisors to wealth managers and that investment management is one component, but not the, the main component right. is a sizable change. And then this the complexity of the distribution landscape, where it used to be kind of wires and everything else. Now it's wires, independents, RAs, and the diverse set. Client channels are similar, but they're also dissimilar in terms of the resources and how to cover it and the buying behavior. And so, so I just would say that, hey, life is constantly changing. The question is, how do you adapt to it? Certain things are immutable and certain things always change. And it's been fascinating to watch. And that's one of the great things about being a part of it. Sure. Absolutely. So, Brett, I, I know that you were a highly successful individual contributor as a wholesaler. And and a lot of folks that I know, they, they get into wholesaling and never do anything else. They love the lifestyle, as you, as you described it. Um, it. It pays fairly well. What led you to want to be a leader in this business? What was your calling? Yeah, no, I don't say I had a calling per se. There's always that innate drive in someone. I was, uh, I think people that self-select in sales are strivers by, by, by definition, a, a type personalities as a striver, you're always trying to figure out that next new challenge. Mm-hmm. And as a striver, you know, finding a way to move up, I had moved through a variety of kind of complex client channels and products, everything from mutual funds to SMAs, SMAs to alternatives. As you move up, you move up from, you know, uh, uh, increasing sophistication level of end advisor. And that next level of evolution was into to leadership. And uh, what I thought, boy, there's always what you think you know, and then what you find out when you get over there side <laughs> of the fence. I thought that the skill sets of knowing how to kind of manage a territory, uh, position a product, speak with impact would be the main things that would take me in success. Uh, I was rudely, uh, rudely interrupted when I found that that what got me here won't get you there in terms of that next step in the career evolution. Right, right. What, what are other new skills that you had to acquire to be successful at the next level and start managing people that were yesterday your peers, now you're managing them? How do you, what, what kind of adjustments did you need to make? All right, let's, let's just first acknowledge that the leap from individual contributor to manager, regardless of what industry, is a major leap. Sure. And that anyone making that leap should find the support from their direct hiring manager and the organization to help smooth that transition. And why? A couple things. First, one of the things is you always think what got you here will get you there. No, because being a leader and being an effective leader isn't about you. It's about others. 
And that's a big shift. Sure. Uh, second thing, you, you have to you have to be of very clear ability to articulate a clear vision and strategy and what are expectations. So said differently, I'm sure, John, when you recruit someone over to a different firm, the first thing they, the question will ask is, what does good look like there? What are the expectations? And can you, can you clearly, clearly articulate that? You know, the la- last two things, and I wish, I wish I was smarter in terms of picking up on this earlier, and, and it's just so kind of a uh, matter of fact now when I look back on it. Just going to lead by example that what you do is always going to be more powerful than what you say. Right. And so what I mean by that, for instance, it's not easy to say, hey, you always want to make sure you show up on time and then you show up late to your own meetings. Just one small example. And so lead by example. And, uh, and I would just, this, this is not necessarily for the, the leap from individual contributor to leadership. This is just in general. Mm-hmm. That leadership isn't, it's not a, an endpoint. It's the beginning of a journey, right? And that journey, in terms of cultivating your leadership toolkit, uh, is 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 evergreen throughout your career. I'm a I'm a much better leader now than I was 20 years ago because of this kind of journey that I've been on, and coaches and mentors have helped me along the way. But I appreciate the question, John, because it wasn't an easy easy transition. Right. It wasn't smooth for me, as I don't think it's smooth for most. Right, right. I, but do you feel like you got significant support from your upper management team to say, hey, Brett's the guy and, and we have our faith in him. That, that's something that needs to be put out there. A- absolutely. There's, uh, there's externally what, what could be done with you in terms of partnership. And there's also internally and what you can do in terms of advancing that, advancing that level of uh, call it acumen or, uh, around leadership and what it entails. Right. Do you, I mean, I don't know if you think about this, but do you have a style that you adhere to or a you know, I'm sure I know you know a lot of your own, your peers in the industry, and everybody's different, right? What would you say is any distinguishing, you know, aspects of your leadership style? Would you think? All right, L- love that question. I don't care if you're an internal, mm-hmm. a wholesaler, a divisional manager, or the president and CEO of an organization. Whether you know it or not, you have a brand, and the difference between experience and inexperience is the ability to craft that brand with attention and to build upon that more specifically. I always love the mental model or a simple way to frame it is, do you pay attention to what you say, do, prioritize, and measure? And those four, those four quadrants would constitute someone's shadow. And I love the visual of a shadow because it's what's cast for those around you. Right. And I'll say it again, with intention, others around you will know it whether or not you're aware of it and use intention with that. And so my, my brand, my brand, you know, as I've gone through uh, executive coaching training throughout the years, you start to try to answer the question, what motivates you? Is it positional authority? Is it uh, being the boss? Is it, is it financial remuneration? In my case, my core motivation uh, is what's called affiliation. I'm motivated by others. And so my brand is motivated and built around building high-performing teams built on trust, right, and psychological safety. Because they'll put the individual ahead of myself. And then just to kind of build upon that, so that shadow for me is anytime someone talks with me, things I talk about, first thing I always will say is culture is the most important thing. It's the invisible glue that holds a place together. It's how we arrive at decisions and how we will encourage productive disagreement. And key, those key words is productive disagreement. Because the most 
clear tell sign of a dysfunctional team is broad agreement and everyone yes and everyone to doubt. Uh, what I do on a regular basis, I always used to use the language set of care deeply challenged directly. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to take the time and know your family and your kids and what's important to you. When things, when you're in a down mood and that's okay, you're going to feel okay sharing it with me. But anytime we're in a meeting, we're going to make sure we challenge any assertion. Not that we have the right answer, but it's important that we understand everything from every angle. And the last two things, less relative to brand, and you're asking, you know, the cultivation of how you, you know, your own unique journey. One of the things I would always uh, prioritize, I used to love the language that has shine the spotlight, which is just saying differently, catching people doing great work. Uh, like as a parent, it's easier to kind of, your kid brings home a report card, three A's, a B and a C, and natural intuition is just to go to the C. Question is, what's the A and how to spotlight and use that as a, a priority? Right. And then the thing I measure is just, just engagement. And so in short, once again, appreciate that answer. Boy, it's the cultivation of a brand. And my brand is always built on culture and people because my core motivation is built around affiliation. Uh, doesn't mean that's the right uh, message for everyone. You have to find what, you know, an individual has to find what, what motivates them mm-hmm. and how do they apply that in the context of their leadership shadow. Right. That's a great answer. I mean, I, I don't think people in general think enough about their personal brand. I probably don't either. Um, and I think that that's something that every leader needs to be able to articulate. Similar, similar to giving an elevator pitch, who are you, what do you do? Um, and being able to articulate your core values, they're right top of mind. You don't have to think about it. So uh, that's exactly that's, that's right. That's a great answer. Great answer. What do you think, you know, in, in the modern era of managing wholesalers, what do you think doesn't work? What, what have you seen out there that just in your mind is bad practice in terms of motivating the right behaviors. All right. So, uh, this is, uh, opinion of one, but I just say with leadership styles, they change and morph over time. Personally, uh, I'm a huge fan. Uh, what I say doesn't work is command and control. Okay. You're going to do this because I say you do it. It's the classic hierarchy, hierarchical relationship. Those at the top make decisions and share information on the need-to-know basis. That was a dominant school of thought for a number of years. Right. I'm more of what's called a uh, uh, servant leadership, which is I'm going to point you in the right direction. We have clear goals. We're going to be aligned around those goals. We're going to know what good looks like. But at the end of the day, you're going to have, you're going to we're, you're going to have agency and the ability to you know kind of impact the region as you see best see fit. And so said differently, one of the ways to think about that, the command and controls, we're going to take that hill and follow this around, right? X, Y, and Z versus, hey, we're going to take that hill. That's the ultimate objective, John. But as soon as you probably get on that first uh, around the slope, you're probably going to encounter something that we didn't anticipate. You're going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to figure it out. And that, that's a little bit what I think doesn't work is command and control. Now, I know some of my peers and cultures and firms right. have that, and that works fine for them. And that's perfectly well and, and okay. Yep. Just for me personally, the types of leaders and the types of style that I like to be known for uh, is not, not, not command and control. Sure. That's, that's a great answer. Brett, what do you look for both in yourself as a former direct manager of salespeople and then managers of managers? How do you measure success beyond just meeting or, or even wildly, succeed, wildly exceeding sales goals? What, what are you looking for in terms of results beyond just hitting the number or exceeding the number? All right. So this, this is a, yeah. What do you look for beyond just, uh, just in racial talk? Hey, did you hit your goal? And I would say, you know, there's two things impacted first mental model. 
You know, when you assess a candidate, I don't care if it's for the CEO of a company or for a wholesaler in a region, typically, and I'd be curious for your reactions, John, there's three, there's kind of three levels of investigation. Right. First of all, you spend a lot of time and attention to try to put together a job spec and that job spec lists the experience and the skills you're looking for. So for example, if you're hiring for a wholesaler in Los Angeles, it's helpful to maybe say, does this person, was it helpful to have five years or seven years or 10 years of experience? Does it fit the mark? Um, but the first thing is always in the easiest level is to try to do a match for experience and skills. Uh, second thing, though, is outcomes. Right. All right. You've been in the role. How have you done? <laughs> what are the things that you've done in the marketplace? And how do you kind of assess the se- separation between how much was done? Is it was the brand? Was the product? Or how much was wholesaler alpha, right. for example? That's important as well. And those are what I call the check the box exercises. But there's a third one that's, that's more difficult, I think a bigger and more important part of any conversation, which is what are the attributes you're looking to hire for? Who succeeds in an organization in a territory? Who succeeds in terms of the type of employees that work well with the type of manager who has a very distinct shadow? And does those attributes have a fit? Because all too often you could take a great player, whether it be sports or it could be a uh, business person, you put them in the right context and they don't succeed. And it's finding those right attributes. And once again, different ways of saying that cultural fit, I think is always quite important. And it takes time to try to suss that out. And so in short, once again, John, you know, in a very minimum, it has to be a coordinated understanding of what you're looking for at a top level skills and experience, followed by outcomes. And then most importantly, attributes uh, would, be, would be a candidate assessment in terms of the language that I would use with our team and how we try to evaluate talent and source people that we thought would fit well within our organization. Right. Great answer. Great answer. Um, so, Brett, you had a great run, 12 years, I believe, with Macquarie and successive promotions over the, I think, three times over the course of that your, your time there, ultimately leading to the job of head of client solutions for the Americas. So you're dealing with a multinational corporation, um, a, a corporation headquartered over in Australia. Um, you, you're ultimately dealing with much bigger issues than just what's the individual uh, production in the Southern California territory, and you're dealing with integrating, you know, acquired organizations, sales teams, and, and much bigger issues, tr- strategic issues. How did you go from being an individual contributor to be able to deal with that? And then did you ever feel like you were out of your depth in any specific area? And if so, what did you do about it? How did you get support? Wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, how did I how did I deal with it? Hey, there's no doubt that uh, I look back on was uh, fortunate. We began this conversation talking about a kid from a small town in Southern Maryland who was ticket out of Southern Maryland's football. We talked about someone who was a hotel restaurant management major, made themselves in the world of financial services. I was a wholesaler and proud of it and made my way up into leadership, which was a tough transition. Right. Wasn't foreordained that I'd be successful. And Macquarie lo- loved my 12 years there. Uh, constantly pushed me outside my comfort zone, giving me a variety of challenges to work with. What had been client expertise around in, uh, retail led to running the client group, institutional and retail, to leading global distribution, to stepping up on the global stage in terms of uh, the executive committee and the chairman of the Optimum Fund Trust. I give you all that, not as a rundown. What I would say to you, the question asked is, how did you feel about that? Right. Like an imposter, <laughs> like an imposter, like I wasn't the right person for the job. Right. And, uh, and by the way, that's just a natural human feeling. Mm-hmm. We all feel like that when we do new things. Sure. And uh, the question then you follow up with is, well, how'd you overcome that? Well, two things. First of all, there's always the understanding that, you know, you got your comfort zone here, the small little circle, 
and your comfort zone over here is outside. Bridging that gap is where all the growth in the world happens. It's doing new things. And doing new things with a supportive organization that's going to help you make the transition is the difference between success and I think would be failure. And I was fortunate enough to have a mentor and coach. I had a wonderful uh, CEO and president of the organization, a guy by the name of Sean Lytle, who early on in my ascension uh, provided me the services of an executive coach. Right. And the executive coach uh, spent a lot of time in terms of trying to develop a psychographic of who I was and what I did well. By extension, if you understand what you do well, you understand your strengths when they're overused, can become a liability or even blind spot. Help, help me think about not only me, but the team and how to build a diverse team. Right. Not the sense of how we talk about DEI, but Brett, if you start to understand what you do well, right. you want to have a diverse cognitive team that helps close your gaps. Mm-hmm. And then most importantly, try to understand that uh, there's a technical aspect to moving up the chain, knowing what you know, knowing, knowing your business. But the more you move up, the more what got you here won't get you there, the more it also becomes about stakeholder engagement. Because I was less about trying sometimes at my latter part of my stages of, of my job at Macquarie, dealing with uh, uh, you know A to B, it was trying to work with a diverse set of stakeholders that formed how the business was run. Mm-hmm. And so instead of facing off with some national sales manager, you spend more of your time talking to the president, talking to the compliance, talking to the legal team, talking to operations. And so, in short, once again, Mohammed, was it smooth? Oh, no way, John. Mm. I felt insecure the entire way. Right. Uh, fortunately, I was working for an organization that people that invested in my in my in my uh, my journey, mm-hmm. and uh, it helped to make sure that uh, I was successful along the way by giving support, training, education that I needed. Right. So, personal coaching. I, I, uh, I'm assuming you would strongly recommend that for anyone that wants to ascend to the type of levels that you were at. Just investing in yourself and using personal coaching, whether it's paid for by your employer or out of your own pocket, it's worth it. Oh, well, this is the standard line. It's just, it's just a throw. No doubt that uh, the red thread through this conversation is going to be a continuous learning. Uh, we live in the age of abundance. You can listen to game changers and learn from the best of others to apply to yourself. There's podcasts, there's books, there's all things you can do yourself. But then, and as well, what you just you're saying is, hey, did Roger Federer become Roger Federer just by self, self being self taught? No, they had coaches their entire way through, and coaches are sometimes just a chance, an opportunity to put a reflection up to the mirror and say, how am I? What am I doing? And how am I doing it? And to what effect? And what can I do better? And I think it's an incredibly powerful tool. And if ever in your career able to have the opportunity to work with an executive coach, you should embrace it full heartedly. Uh, because it's one of the ways I think to turbocharge your understanding of yourself sure. and best how to apply your strengths and put yourself in position to utilize your strength to maximum effect. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, so this past January, your your very long run and, and successful run at Macquarie came to an end, and it really doesn't matter as to why, um, but I'm curious, how did it make you feel for, I, I assume, the first time in a very long time that you weren't working? I mean, did you feel like, and I talked to a lot of, folks that are in that position and some of the things they share with me is they just don't know what to do with themselves. They they feel unmoored without that job identity to, to put forward. I'm, I'm curious as to how you felt, um, you know, at that time in your life, short time in your life. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Going through, going through a job transition and, and, uh, and I'll always love to frame things on a good day and a bad day. And, and, uh, you know, on a bad day, we're all human beings. We talked about earlier on just the movement up in career paths as a striver. Right. Uh, 
Did you feel like you knew everything and had it? No, I feel like an imposter many times. During a job transition or on a bad day, I would, I would ruminate on the past and fret about an unknown fu- future. And, and the question is, though, the obstacle is the way to pull from my other favorite podcast, the Game Changers, the Daily Stoic, and giving like a little bit of man crush on, on Ryan Holiday. Uh, the obstacle is the way, and the question is, what are you going to do about it and how do you frame it? Right. And on a good day, it's an opportunity to bring attention. We talked about this earlier, that red thread is, do you bring attention to who you are and your brand? Do you cultivate and understand it? And here's a chance for me to bring attention to the next phase of my career. Sure. What will I do and how will I do it? And what will I do differently? And I spent a lot of time, uh, if I had one kind of clear kind of reset for me, is you all too often, you find yourself in a pattern of recurring uh, sets of cues and behaviors. Here, I'm trying to really bring some attention to a better balance in my life between my what I'm doing for my career, but just as importantly, what I do for my family and my health and my community are things that I'm thinking on a lot of intention around, John. So I, I appreciate you answer that question. Uh, good days and bad days. More time goes on. They're all good days. Right. Uh, but it took some time to get there. Right. No, no doubt. No doubt. And I know that you're very plugged in, networked with your peers in the industry and just people in general. I mean, did you feel like that? You, you're all of that networking that you did over the years. Did you feel like you reaped some rewards of that when it, when you ultimately maybe really needed them? Yeah. No, I wouldn't say reap rewards and never cultivated the uh, relationships in terms of uh, future within the industry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as as strategic. Uh, I cultivate it as a sense of building community. Okay, and uh, and 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 no doubt you you picked upon a thread that I thought is quite important just to kind of double click on. You know, we we often conflate what we do with who we are. And I had a difficult transition moving as the captain of the Penn State football team to being a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch. That's a change of identity. And through the onus of time, I look back on it. It was you know it seems like a blip, but but it was difficult. And what you're suggesting here is, hey, you made a pretty big transition. The prestige of the role and you shifted. How are you dealing with that? And how did the network come to effect? I would say, you know, quite simply, it's, it's I don't conflate what I did with who I am. And I always love the mental model of, uh, you know, how my network helped me is confirm that I was doing the right things. And what do right. I mean by that? The resume is what you did and how you did. Hey, Brett, you were the head of global distribution. No, but the the how I did it was more important. And those are like, I like to say, not the resume values, but the eulogy values. How do people talk about you? And they're never going to say that that bastard, man, he worked really hard and he was right. a grinder and he held people accountable. At the end of the day, what you want, he was given his time. He cared about his people. He gave a lot within the industry. So how did my network help? They helped shine a spotlight and put a mirror up to myself that the things in terms of who I was were still the who I am today. Right. My business title may change. But nothing else about me changed. Right. And that's, I think, an important part of identity. Don't conflate what you do with who you are and have a firm sense of who you are and how you're trying to live your life by what values and mission that you hold important and the type of person you want to be perceived as. Right, right. And I know um, you, you didn't spend much time on the sidelines, uh, Brett, and you ultimately landed at Axis. I mean, and you give some great advice about how to stay how to stay positive as a job seeker is just to remind yourself constantly of who you are and that you know your job doesn't reflect everything about you and that you're still the same great individual that you were before you ended up uh, unemployed. Yeah, no, I never tell you. I mean, so many sometimes there's a gift, and one of those gifts for me was someone gave me uh, you know a book called Never Search Alone by Phil Terry in terms of how to navigate a job transition. And one of the first things that became my rallying cry 
which my rallying cry, which was to that search alone. And I'm proud to say we formed a, a community of, uh, of other senior executives navigating transition, some trying to find their way within financial services to their next challenge, others saying how do they make a transition to do something entirely different. Right. And by creating a community of like-minded individuals, we were able to find, I think, four things that became quite helpful for me. And I'm still part of that community because it's a sense of belonging. Right. And I think one of the things that helped was, first of all, we well, yeah, use that language set on a good day, on a bad day. On a bad day, it's helpful to have someone in your network you can call because when you go through something like this, what's, what you think is extraordinary mm-hmm. is rather ordinary. Sure. John, you're a professional recruiter. You do executive search. This is what you do every day deal with people transition. Right. It's not, this is the standard form of business. And so taking the extraordinary and making it ordinary by dealing with people going through a transition, I think for me, was incredibly helpful. The other things that were incredibly helpful in terms of just lessons learned and that I would suggest to anyone, and I'm happy to talk to anyone who'd love to talk about transition, would be it's a sense of uh, amplifying your networks. You know, I knew a lot of people, uh, but also it's the notion of having your network or another network and another network all added together really amplify your ability to be aware of what's happening in the marketplace. And, and that never search alone, this is the last thing I'd mention. You know, one of the things anyone will have to always answer for themselves when they go through transition, how are you staying current? Stay on top of things. And, uh, you know, the opportunity as a group to sit there and talk about what's happening in flows or changes in organizations, et cetera, and the process it through the group dynamics. And so, boy, lessons learned and going back to that kind of red thread through this conversation, doing new things make you at in, in exploring new aspects of yourselves. Right. And then you can face it with uh, fearfulness or you can face it with excitement. And no matter, I'm here to tell you on the other end of that bridge, there's always a next destination for everybody. Sure. Absolutely. Oh, great advice. That's, that's great. Um, Brett, the, just taking a, taking a step back to the industry now, the, the industry is always changing and evolving. What do you see coming down the pike in the industry that, that excites you, that think is, you think is the next best thing or what's, what's, uh, what should we all look forward to here in this industry? I don't know if I look forward to it. I just want to see uh, maybe two things that are just really, this, this is changing. I, I just find, I find fascinating. And uh, to, to my friend Bing Walder, I'll do a shameless plug for their research. They've been documented for a while to call the rise of the mega advisor. Uh, and they define mega advisor as over 500 million AUM. And it's the classic power law. 20% of advisors now represent uh, 80% of the AUM. And as they grow larger, 500, a billion, 5 billion, the, the, numbers have become, the numbers have become just incredible at the upper scale. Uh, you become institutional. Mm. Uh, it's just not a single uh, practice. Right. And as you become professionalized, you have role specialization. Right. And so you have business development, you have client experience, you have administration, and you have portfolio construction. And what I mean by that, and so the one of the clear kind of changes that are happening is you face off first professionals that have full job is portfolio construction from a technical expertise. You better know your product and know it inside and out. And it's become almost whether you call an institutional public pension plan or call an institutional consultant or call on the home office research or the research side of a large uh, mega advisory team. It's They've all kind of coalesced around this kind of institutionalization of our business. And I find that exciting develop that continues to play out. The other thing I just would call mention to, and I just find this fascinating, and I'd love to get your reaction to it. Mm-hmm. You know, in the last 20 years, the rise of the internet and smartphones, this darn Simba supercomputer that exists within our pocket. Right. You know, when I started in the business, you know, you had to call up someone to get a stock quote. Sure. Now, and this is, I quoted Cerule earlier, I quote Gardner Research now, 
I don't care if you're buying a house or buying a car or buying a financial services product, that front end of the client journey, you can self-serve yourself all day long. Right. 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 First place my wife goes when we buy a house, we go to Zillow. First place you go when you buy a car, you go to Edmonds. First place you buy an investment product, go to you go to ETF.com or go to a research site. Right. And so how we engage, the role of wholesaling has never been more important. But where it began on the front end, kind of building awareness was where we spent all our time. Now all the time has been back end loaded. It's that last 20% of the client journey right. where they've done the awareness, they've considered other options, and now they want to understand the unique attributes of your product right. and on a technical basis how it fits with a diversified portfolio. I just think that client journey has changed, and I think the context of the advisors we deal with has changed in terms of the professionalization and the rise of the mega advisor. Those are two things that excite me right. and two things I think me and my peers off to figure out a way how you navigate with strategy and structure and resource plan that you put out in the marketplace. Right. Do you think it's still, um, you know, for, for day-to-day wholesaler in the field, is it still very important to, to form relationships in the same way you have in the past, personal friendship relationships with advisors? Or is, is that day kind of in the past at this point? No, I, no they, I don't, uh, there is no doubt relationships in a relationship-driven industry always be important as they are in real estate, as they are in mortgage broker, as they are in car dealerships. Uh, has it changed? No doubt. And, uh, and the, and what the advisors look for from an organization has changed. It's more than just having great product. It's great product, a great brand with a great pricing proposition, with a great value proposition, with a great engagement model. I mean, it's a lot more multifaceted, but I'll just re- reinforce this again. The notion of wholesaling has become more important than ever. It's the engagement model has shifted and where the importance kind of uh, points along the way where they have the greatest impact mm-hmm. has shifted the, the greatest. Right. And so it used to be in my day, it was getting a relationship on the front end. Now you can't get to that relationship on the front end in many cases until you've earned the right through that kind of client journey and engaging on a technical aspect. And so, so no doubt, I am more bullish on wholesaling than I've ever have been before. No doubt it's more difficult than ever has been before. And no doubt that client journey's changed. But there always will be a place for it, at least in my point of view. Right. Got it. Got it. Um, Brett, a lot of a lot of young kids, yourself included, when you were in college, you didn't know this this whole industry of distribution, you know, financial product distribution. You weren't aware of it. How do we get young people interested in this industry and and how would you advise them to navigate this industry, to get into it, to to thrive in it? Any any pieces of advice yeah. there? Yeah, no, I think it's incredible. It's still, still industry with a bright future ahead of it. And I, I find it, you know, incredibly uh, fulfilling and grateful that I've been part of it. Uh, my advice to young people, it, it'd be the same. And this would be the same whether you're coming to financial services or, or, or going to work for a consulting firm or, or what have you, you know. Um, and John, these are themes that have come through this conversation. And so I love repetition. You hear it once, you hear it twice, you hear it three times. Right. You're saying, okay, there's a theme here. Right. Uh, number one, embrace continuous learning. Uh, had a, you know, we talk about this whole notion of nonlinear careers. Uh, I'm a fortunate byproduct of having done multiple things. And oh, by the way, throughout, it felt like an, an imposter throughout, but I'm richer for those experiences and have grown and grown tremendously for that. Uh, second, you asked the question, do relationships matter? Yeah, the relationships matter externally, how you engage with your advisors. But just as importantly, it's not only being technically proficient, but to build meaningful relationships. How will you want to be perceived by your peers by, by your friends, by your family, invest in it. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, whether you're 22 or 58, uh, two things are going to make you happy, a sense of accomplishment and a sense of meaningful connections. 
and having a, having your health with you. Right. That's a lot more important than what your sales goal was last month. Right. And so nurture meaningful relationships within within your within your area. And then that final part, and I just love this thread. You know, what I love people that are probably listen to this, you're probably self-selected for it anyway. Seek feedback. Continue, seek feedback. Uh, put the mirror up to yourself. And if you have the opportunity to get coaching and work with a recruiter, ask people all the time, what's my shadow? How am I perceived and what's my brand? Those are three pieces of advice I think I'd offer anyone. I'd offer my own kids sure. looking to embark on a successful career in financial services. Right. Now, I, I think one of the themes that, that seems to be threading through our conversation here is just the constant improvement and constant working on yourself. I mean, that, that's hugely important, as you say, in any industry, including this one. Um, so thank you. Brett, what industry associations and causes have been part of your life over the course of your career? And would you direct anyone else to participate in in the same type of organizations that you've been in? Yeah, well, I, this is a, I always love the chance to shine the spotlight and brag about two things that had a, you know, oh, I left a lasting mark on me and I'm still involved in the day and can count many of the uh, people that work at them, still friend, friends and mentors. Uh, one would be the Investment Wealth Institute, formerly known as IMCA, mm-hmm. uh, whose, whose mission in life, uh, ran, ran by Sean Walters, is to kind of improve the professionalization of financial services through advanced education. Uh, and for me, it led an indelible mark on myself serving uh, on the board there by, by dealing with some of the best advisors in the business right. uh, across multi-channels and understanding beyond just the world of investment management, how they went about building their craft, how they went about building their craft. And I'm forever grateful for that experience. Uh, actually getting together with Sean next week, so quite excited. That's great. And, and uh, helped help me grow in this continuous learning mm-hmm. uh, outside outside my, my area. And the other one, would be the good work of the friends at M&I, Money Management Institute, uh, uh, Arlen and Craig and the entire group. And if you're, their, their mantra is connect, learn, and grow. And if there's one thread we're trying to draw here is develop and invest in meaningful relationships and continuous learning. Right. What, what a great opportunity. I, if you haven't thought about it, they've put together a professional uh, IQ program right now where emerging leaders, they build communities for you for the next-gen leaders. They're doing things in the DEI community. And as well, they now are providing access to uh, college-led, college-led courses within small cohorts to practice their chance. How do you make the transition from individual contributor to leadership? Right. Here's a chance we're going to help you along the way with their IQ program. And so those would be two organizations I would do a shameless plug, wow. having been part of it, that have given back more to me than I ever could have given to them. Wow. That's great, Brett. Well, thank you so much for being here, Brett, today um, and sharing all of this great insight and, uh, and all the details about your career. It's going to be very helpful to our listeners. And I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, it was wonderful being part of you, John, and keep up the good work. Thanks for having, thank having me part of your today's show. Thank you, Brett. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Game Changers. One of the things I value most about my job are the relationships and what I've learned from the candidates and clients I've worked with and I appreciate you all. I really enjoyed the conversation today with Marie, and I think she offered a lot of good insight both on managing a career as well as effective leadership. One of the important things I'm taking away is the idea that management is a calling and one that involves developing people to help them get into a position to win for the team, and then that they get the glory and you stand off to the side and let them be the focal point of that praise. I also enjoyed hearing about how Marie carefully analyzes job opportunities in the context of the overall industry before accepting any new role. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share this episode with friends. If you have any feedback, ideas, or if you'd be interested in being a guest yourself, I'd love to hear from you. 
I can be reached on LinkedIn, or you can reach me via email at J-K-E-A-V-E-Y at careerconnections.us. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon in our next episode of Game Changers.